this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. My name is Jordan Bloom and I'm a resident in cardiothoracic surgery at the Mass General Hospital in Boston. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. George Tolis. Dr. Tolis is one of the surgeons here at Mass General. His clinical interests include education, aortic and coronary surgery. Today I'm gonna be speaking with Dr. Tolis regarding his thoughts on aortic valve replacement with concomitant root disease. Dr. Tolis, thank you for being here. Thank you. So Dr. Tolis, there's a 55 year old male who presents to his uh, primary care doctor for a routine physical but complains of uh, some increased fatigue lately and is found to have a new systolic murmur. His primary care doc sends him to get an echo where he finds out that at age 55, he has a bicuspid aortic valve with moderate to severe AR. Additionally, his aortic root is dilated to 5.1 centimeters at the sinotubular junction. This uh, primary care physician refers him to your office. So the first question I have for you is, do you have all the information you need to make a clinical decision about what's best for this patient? And if not, what more do you need? Um, I feel that I do. Uh, the aneurysm you said was 5.1 centimeters? Yes. So the, uh, even though there is no hard and fast rule as to, or an absolute number as to when we operate and when we don't operate, uh, a magic number has been set to be between 5 and 5.5, magic range, I should say. So 5.1 falls within that range. Uh, what I would tend to do for a healthy patient, healthy young patient who has an aneurysm of 5.1 uh, in the uh, aneurysm of the aortic root, I would certainly recommend an operation. For a patient who's in their 80s and may have kidney disease and may be missing a leg because of diabetes, I probably would not be as aggressive. So uh, when you fall into the sort of gray category as to whether you need to do an operation or not, you need to consider uh, other issues as well. But for a healthy patient at age 51 with this anatomy and no other medical issues, I would recommend an operation. Okay. And are there any, is there any additional testing that this man would need? Does he need to have his coronary studied uh, or, or a chest CT or anything else? So I would order both studies. I assume that you made the diagnosis with an echo. Yes. So we do have the echo. The one piece of information you can get from the echo is the nature of the patient's aortic root. Uh, and what I, what I mean by that is to see if, in addition to the, to the size that you mentioned, to the, to the dimensions that you've mentioned, if they have lost their uh, anatomy of the root. So if they have what we call annual aortic ectasia versus just a big root with some reconstitution of the sinotubular junction. The former pathology makes the natural history much more aggressive. Uh, the latter pathology, I still would recommend an operation, but it's probably not as aggressive a course that they would follow as if they uh, compared to the to the annual aortic ectasia okay. um remind me of the second question any other studies yeah does he need to have his coronaries so i would recommend a coronary angiogram not necessarily only because uh, i want to know if he needs a bypass but a coronary angiogram also helps you uh understand dominance and that can become an issue if uh, you run into trouble and you need to know what bypass to do in order to address uh, coronary mishaps that may happen during implantation. 
In addition to that, you know, a patient in their 50s, I think they've bought themselves a coronary angiogram if they're going to have an operation, unless there's very specific contraindications for it, such as uh, renal failure, but not quite to the point of dialysis and, and, and a couple of other things. I would also recommend a CAT scan because a patient with uh, a senioric pathology uh, is not extremely likely, but more likely than the general population to have aortic pathology elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend a chest CT and an abdominal CT. Well, that would also help you do, even though you can figure that out in the operation, it'll help you plan the operation before you start it, such as do you need circulatory arrest? Uh, can you do this with a clamp? Can you do, you have to do it with an open anastomosis and so on and so forth. Uh, again, not absolutely necessary, but good in order to do your planning and be able to tell the uh, OR staff and, you, and, and the patient's family what kind of operation you're going to do and how long it's going to take and so on and so forth. Okay. And if this patient was averse to surgery, would you say there are any appropriate non-operative management strategies for this patient or unequivocally he needs an operation? No. I mean, if they, uh, I would tell them that they don't need to have an operation right away. I would tell them that it would be my hope that they need an operation at some point in the next few years because if they don't, it means they're going to die of something else and they're too young for that. Uh, but at 5.1, if they want to wait because they're not quite mentally ready for it, uh, I would feel comfortable telling them that they can come back in six months, not more than that for another study. But I would very strongly try to recommend that they make up their mind and that they face this operation. I think that the risk of that operation for someone who is 51 does not exceed 1 or 2%. Uh, the natural history of a 5.1 centimeter aneurysm, uh, it's hard to know what it is, but I highly doubt that the risk is less than 1%. Okay. All right, so let's say that the coronary angiogram shows a right dominant system with no uh, obstructive coronary lesions, and the uh, abdomen and pelvic, or the chest, abdomen, and pelvis CT shows that the patient has no uh, other aortic uh, aneurysms or issues and uh, has a normal sized ascending aorta at, at the level of, uh, of the arch, uh, the, the, you know, the, the distal ascending aorta and the arch. So what operation would we be planning to do here? So this potentially could be done with a clamp. I would definitely do a root replacement, mm -hmm. uh, and we can discuss what kind of valve we would use um, uh, later. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, the, of management of the distal anastomosis, it's a decision that I would leave uh, for, the, for the operating room. If there is a very clear transition between the aneurysmal segment and a completely normal ascending segment, uh, then I could potentially do this with a clamp. Uh, for example, we see this in morphinoid patients that have a uh, normal sort of ascending aorta and an extremely thinned out root uh, tissue. Uh, you could argue that in these patients you should also do these with circulatory arrest because there, might, there must be some abnormalities in the ascending aorta, but that's a different topic. In this particular case, uh, I guess what I would do is I would try to find a reason. Uh, my goal would be to replace the entire aorta up okay. to the uh, takeoff of the, uh, of the innominate artery. If I'm not going to do that, there, I have to find an extremely compelling reason in the operating room not to use a clamp. My default would be, or I should say to use a clamp. My default would be not to use a clamp and do this with an open anastomosis. Okay. Um, 
I think that it's not it's it's uh, doing circulatory arrest in a 51 year old does not significantly increase the risk if it does at all, and uh, I feel that it is a more co complete operation when you cannot identify this transition between the root and the ascending aorta. Okay, all right. So let's talk about the operative strategy then, uh, and and why don't we make the assumption that we're going to use circ arrest based on what you found intraoperatively? What would our can what would your cannulation strategy be? So on a 51-year-old, uh, let me backtrack a little bit. I happen to do most of my own redos. So uh, when I do an operation, I try to do the best operation that I can the first time. And once that is guaranteed, I try to make sure that the second operation is not going to be as hard. So um, what I would do in that patient is I would uh, try not to use peripheral cannulation and leave that for potentially future operations. I would first assess the aortic arch, make sure there's no calcium, and I could know that from the CAT scan, uh, and make sure that the tissue in the aortic arch is not thin, that the aorta feels like, like a thick walled aorta. If that is the case, I would cannulate the lesser curvature of the arch with a standard aortic cannula. Venous cannulation, I would cannulate the right atrial appendage, and uh, uh, I would also not use an LV vent. What I would use is I would use a PA vent to uh, uh, to keep my field dry when I'm doing the root. And uh, then uh, when I'm rewarming and I'm done with the right coronary button, which is, which is what I usually do after the circulatory arrest, uh, if the patient is still cold, uh, I would try to cardiovert them early. If I can't cardiovert them, I would just make sure that I keep an eye on the ventricle that is not distending, wait for them to warm up a little bit more and eventually uh, uh, cardiovert them. If the ventricle is distending, I just go ahead and put an LV vent. But again, the thought process here is that I don't want to start cannulating everything to make my life easy now, thinking that this patient might need another operation in the future. And I'd like to keep the field as virgin as possible in terms of cannulation sites. Okay. And you mentioned this uh, briefly earlier, but what about the discussion in terms of a, a mechanical versus a bioprosthetic valve in this patient? Sure. 55-year-old patient needs to have the valve replaced. What do you tell patients? So uh, a 55-year-old who gets a mechanical valve will, will need to be in lifelong Coumadin for the rest of their lives. And uh, that's basically the end of the story. The only thing that could affect, uh, that could change that would be if it gets infected and everything can get infected. Or if there's panis formation into the uh, mechanical valve. But again, that's somewhat unlikely um, uh, to happen. It's a very rare complication. Um, when patients ask me and say, what would you do? I tell them that I'm 48 and in my age I get a mechanical valve because I enjoy doing this, but if I needed it done on me, I just want it done once and not twice. So I'd be more than happy to take Coumadin and just keep my INR between 2 and 2.5 and never have anyone else go inside my chest to do anything else. But obviously we have to respect what what patients want and there are some patients that either fear Coumadin because a doctor told them bad things about it or because they had a family member and they have a bad experience with Coumadin and I think we need to, to, to respect their wishes. So uh, if a 55 year old says that they want a bioprosthetic valve I am more than happy to do it and uh, um, you know as far as long as they understand that they're going to need an, uh, that this should give them about at least 10 to 12 years and after that anything goes. It could go to 18 or 20 years or they could need this redone within 10 or 12 years. As long as they understand that, uh, I'm totally fine with that. Uh, 
In addition to that, I would much rather do a redo on an aortic valve that is inside a, inside a conduit than do a, a isolated AVR when someone has had a previous AVR uh, in the past. It's probably one of these um, operations that is easier to redo the more complex operation than the more simple operation. And the reason is because with a reimplantation of the coronary arteries that is higher than where they normally sit in the native aorta, uh, a redo AVR and a previous Bentall operation is actually a very simple operation. Uh, identifying the graft and clamping it is pretty straightforward in a redo field. In addition to that, when you cut the aorta to, to get to the old valve, you can cut it right above the coronary, so at a very low level because you don't need good tissue from both sides to take nice bites when you close it. Mm -hmm. All you need when you close the neo-aorta or the, the hemoshield graft is just two or three graft divisions on either side with a running uh, curling suture, and that's plenty of uh, strength for the tissue to close it uh, you know, the second time around. So a redo AVR on a bioprosthetic bental is actually not as complicated as a redo AVR on someone who has his native aorta in the previous bioprosthesis implanted in the native annulus. Okay, so in this operation, which is going to, um, you know, we'll say this, this patient elected for a bioprosthetic bental with circa rest, uh, in, in, in doing these operations many times in your career, what are some of the pitfalls of that operation, or what have you learned uh, with the steps? So uh, the, the first thing is you have to find, there's a couple of things. First of all is you have to identify something that works for you for the buttons and always do the same thing. If you want to use thin, to use thin felt strips because that's how you were trained, you should always do that. If you don't want to use them and you just want to take single or double bites of the tissue because that works for you, you should do that as well. I think what is a mistake is to change the technique based on what you read somewhere or you know what someone else told you to do and that kind of thing. You need to be, there's a lot of things that work with the buttons, but consistency works better than anything else. Uh, the second thing is make sure that you mobilize the buttons enough without injuring them. The, the more you mobilize the buttons, the more accurate you can be in the placement, uh, the reimplantation on the graft. And uh, if they're not mobilized enough, they're technically harder to, to sew onto the graft and you may compromise their position based on what is easy, not based on where they need to sit. The third thing that I would say is never ever compromise the sizing of the uh, annulus. So uh, the, the way that this typically happens is when someone, for example, has a very large annulus that you see in marfanoid patients in a very small distal uh, aorta where they're gonna do the distal anastomosis. So they think that if I use a 27 valve, then I'm gonna upsize the graft by three or five, it's gonna be a 30 or a 32 graft, and my distal aorta is, is only 22 uh, millimeters. So let me just, instead of using a 27 valve, let me just use a 23 and see how that works. That can be a fatal error because the annulus is extremely unforgiving when you either undersize it or oversize it. Uh, both undersizing and oversizing can lead to bleeding from the annulus that is extremely difficult to fix. And remember that bleeding from anywhere else you can discover in the middle of the operation, bleeding from the annulus only becomes apparent when you separate from bypass. So uh, you need to be extremely accurate in your measurement of the, uh, of the annulus. And no matter what you have to face distally, you have to make 100% sure that that is done correctly, 
not more, not less, exactly correctly. Um, the, uh, the third thing is once you're done with the proximal part, then the distal anastomosis, you can always figure something out to make it work. If the distal is bigger than your graft, then you can bevel your graft. If the distal is smaller, you can usually cheat it and do okay. If you cheat, remember to cheat in the front, not in the back. So create a bigger, so you have a problem because your graft is bigger than the, than the aorta. Make the problem worse initially because you're taking relatively equal bites on the back wall and figure out how you're gonna fix it in the front wall. The front wall you can see and you can fix bleeding very easily. The back wall, if there's graft that is uh, not really well opposed to the, uh, to the, to the uh, uh, distal asaniorta or the arch, that can be a problem to fix. Uh, and finally, what I would do is just make sure that your coronary buttons are done correctly and they, they're not bleeding. The left button, you can test it with integrate cardioplegia. The right button I do after my distal anastomosis, so I cannot test it until the clamp comes off, but you just have to make sure that you're very accurate with the bites that you take on the coronary buttons and the position where you re-implant them. Okay. All right, so let's say that the procedure went fine. What would you uh, say about an expected post-operative course after this procedure? It depends on whether you use circulatory arrest or not. If you did not use circulatory arrest, they should be awake within two or three or five hours, and they should be extubated, you know, right after they're, uh, they're awake. And uh, they should have the standard four or five-day post-operative course. Uh, if you've used a mechanical valve, usually the, the rate-limiting factor that controls discharge is the INR more so than the patient's physical condition. Uh, if you use circulatory arrest, the, uh, th they're a little bit slower to wake up, and uh, when they wake up, they're not as clear, but usually you can't tell the difference when you see them two or three days out. So um, I would say that for both categories, clamp or circ arrest, the initial ICU course is a little bit slower for the circ arrest, but by the time you reach day four or five, they basically look exactly the same. Okay. Uh, and... Tell me, just, just to kind of finish up here, so the patient does fine, leaves the hospital on day six. Uh, what are you following them now long-term for? How, how often do they need to be seen? Do they need any additional screening? Just as a reminder, this is a, you know, a, a bicuspid patient with a root aneurysm. Do they need to worry about the rest of their aorta? Uh, you, you know, take me, walk me sort of through how your strategy is for that. Sure. So the first six months, I would repeat a CAT scan to make sure that there's no uh, complications related to the operation, that there's no pseudoaneurysms of the buttons, that there's no pseudoaneurysm of the distal anastomosis, um, that kind of stuff. Um, after that, we need to remember that this patient with a bicuspid valve, they're probably not in the most aggressive form of aerotopathy like the Marfan patients, but they're also not your sporadic... 80-year-old uh, that was found to have a 5.5-centimeter five, 5 ascending aneurysm, and you replace their, replace their aorta, and their natural history dictates that they're probably unlikely to make it to age 90 anyway. This is a patient that, you know, is going to live for another 30-plus years, so uh, we have to make sure that we follow them for their aortopathy. 
I consider someone with a bicuspid valve and an ascending aneurysm to have a systemic disease and they need to be treated as such. So after the six months, I would subject them to yearly CAT scans. And if after five or six years, the rest of the aorta looks exactly the same, it's normal size, I think we can ease that and repeat the scan in two or three years and so on and so forth. Okay. And then final question, uh, just thinking about this patient as a congenital patient now, does, uh, does his or her family need to be screened for uh, aortopathy based on this presentation? Yes, so I would not quite call them congenital, although they do have a bicuspid valve, which is something they are born with. Um, they don't quite fall in the adult congenital um, um, classification. classification. Okay. But it's definitely something that they inherited from someone in their gene pool. So my recommendation for them to be to, uh, to find all their blood relatives and tell them that they need to go to their primary care doctor and tell them that a blood relative of theirs had uh, an aortic aneurysm. And at that point, I would hope that the primary care doctors are educated enough to know what to do. Okay. Great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Tulsa. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much.